It's a special time of year when we remember the Son of God in a manger. He grew up and he went on to teach us revolutionary truths about eternal life and to give his life and rise again that we might have salvation. We find him teaching again at what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. If you were with us last week, you remember he, he laid out that shocking phrase to, to the people there. that hey, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I thought about what many of those scribes and Pharisees were doing. We talked about their 800 traditions that they had added to God's law. And it's almost as though, if you, if you can imagine, someone went to their doctor, the doctor looked at their heart and told them, you need a heart transplant. Without that, you're hopeless. You need a brand new heart. And that, that person uh, went home. Their, their wife knew that's what the doctor had said, but the wife looks in the bathroom and, and she sees the husband with box after box after ba of band-aids that he had grabbed at the store, and he's just putting them on his chest. It's getting quite a stack here. And she's like, what are you doing? And uh, he says, I'm uh, just stacking band-aids over my heart here. And she's going to say, you fool. <laughs> That's not going to help anything. You need a brand new heart. I think that's some of what Jesus was getting at with these Pharisees is they stacked their external rules one on top of the other. The underlying issue was still there. It was the internal. They needed a, a brand new heart. And that's where that exceeding righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. Today, he's going to begin to walk us through six real life examples of what this deeper righteousness looks like in the life of his faithful children. We're going to do three this week and three next week. So if you thought Sermon on the Mount was like pie on the sky, pie in the sky kind of stuff, this you're going to realize this is where the rubber meets the road. What does exceeding righteousness look like? Not only in my standing before God, but in how I live in this world. Okay, and as we go through here, you're going to see him say six times over the next two weeks in Matthew 5, 21 through 48. It was said, but I say to you. Now, it's important that we understand he is not correcting the Old Testament scriptures. We know that because if you were here last week, we read in Matthew 5, 17, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. I came to what? Fulfill. To fulfill them. So he's not coming to correct those. He didn't say, it was written, but I say to you. He said, it, it was said, but I say to you. What's he correcting? He's correcting what these religious leaders were going around telling the people about the Old Testament law. It was said but I say to you, and that I say to you, that would have grated on the ears of the scribes and Pharisees because when they taught, they always had to share their sources. 
This is why I said this. This is why I said this. For Jesus, he just said, but I say to you. He was the source. Why? He's God the Son. He's the promised Messiah. He is the promised King. I think of what the author of Hebrews said in chapter 1, verse 1. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. And it's because he kept saying, but I say to you, but I say to you, that you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount and you see the reaction of the crowd. Matthew 7, 28, as the crowds were astonished, they were shocked at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So with that foundation established, I want to start looking at three examples in real life where this deeper righteousness plays out, this righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And the first one, Matthew 5.21, is in the area of anger. The area of anger. Verse 21. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, is that true as far as it goes? Yeah, that's one of the Ten Commandments. Right? Thou shalt not murder. The problem is how the average Pharisee in that day approached that law. And maybe like some of us do. A lot of them may have thought to themselves, hey, I've never stabbed or strangled or suffocated anyone. So I'm good. Next. But was Jesus done? Oh, verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, some translations read angry without cause, and most believe that's the intention of Jesus because there is such a thing as, as righteous anger. Paul says, be angry and sin not. What's he saying here? I came not only to deal with the action of murder, but the heart underneath it. How many of you know it's, it's possible for everything externally to look okay, but for something to be brewing in here? I thought about that, and I thought about the the husband and wife that constantly went back and forth yelling at each other. And, and one time the husband started yelling at his wife and, and she didn't yell back. And, and he thought everything was okay. Externally it was. And he says, hey, how's come you're so peaceful this time? She said, oh, I found a new way to just stay calm in the middle of those moments. She said, I, I, uh, I go and wash the toilet. And he said, how does that bring you peace? And she said, I use your toothbrush. <laughs> See, he's looking externally. 
everything seemed all right, but there was something, <laughs> something still going on in here. He came not only to deal with that action of murder, but the, the anger underlying it, whether the physical murder ever happens or not. I think about that, and I think about what's been going on in Hawaii recently. If you've been watching the news, Mauna Loa has been erupting ab above the surface for the first time since the 1980s. But if you know your geology, let me ask you a question. Was that uh, volcano totally inactive for the last 40 years? No. There was a lot going on underneath the surface, right? You, you see where we're going with this. And, and Jesus cares, we're going to see, he cares not only about the eruption of, of murder, that sometimes comes out of that sinful heart underneath, but also the eruption of words. Now, many of us would say, I've never physically murdered anybody, but we get into the realm of words and how we speak of others, whether in our heart or, or outwardly. That, that's a different matter, right? What does he say here? Whoever insults his brother, many translation says to his brother, Raka. Now, has anybody called their... Anybody Raka this week? No, me neither. So we're going to unpack that in a minute. Whoever says to his brother Raka will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Raka is an interesting word. As I looked up what that means, uh, different scholars defined it different ways, but the idea was always the same. It's, a, it's an intellectual condemnation of someone else. I came across the word numbskull, <laughs> bonehead, blockhead, and I, I read that one and I thought even about the old Peanuts cartoons, right? Lucy, to Chuck, you, you blockhead. I guess Lucy had some growing to do in her Christ-likeness. <laughs> you fool, that's the next one. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Many believe that's transliterated from a Hebrew word that, 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 that was spiritual condemnation. Spiritual condemnation. Uh, to call someone a spiritual rebel or outcast. To take that place of judge that, that should only be God's. And sit in that place of ultimate condemnation upon them. I like what A.B. Bruce said about these two words. He said, Raka expresses contempt for a man's head. You stupid. Fool expresses contempt for his heart and character. You scoundrel. And I think about this. I think about something that D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that, that really ought to cause us pause. He said, oh, yes. There are ways in which a person can be destroyed short of murder. We can destroy a man's reputation. We can shake somebody else's confidence in him by whispering criticism or by deliberate fault finding. And as I read this, there's warning in these words, loving warning from Jesus, because each of these things, the attitude of anger and the insults that come out of those, if you read what he said three times, he says, you're liable. Liable to judgment, liable to the council, liable to the hell of fire. And I saw this played out in real life this week. Uh, uh, 
a guy the church had been helping called me from the other side of the mountain and he said something happened that this never happened in my life before I landed in jail I'm out on bail I asked him what happened he said somebody pushed me and my reaction was was over the top it, it can have consequences in our physical world but Jesus goes to the liability of the the hell of fire and that is if if anger enslaves you to the point that it becomes your master and keeps you from coming in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ as your Savior, it will eventually lead you to that eternity in hell. There is great liability with this. Action is required if this is stirring in our hearts. Look at verse 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, he's talking about the temple altar, down there providing your gift, a good thing to do, commanded by God in that era. But you're doing it, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Notice that it's your brother has something against you. It's not even that you're harboring something against him. It's that you think you've done something to offend him. What does he say to do? Your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You see, every one of these commandments, the, the negative has a positive flip side that tells us about the heart of God. It's, it's not just don't be angry at that person. It's do everything in your power to make things right with that person where there's a wall between you and them. Think about where we're at right now this morning. The urgency he's talking about is like, hey, don't wait till the next two points of this sermon. Go grab your cell phone and call that person. Don't wait till we sing that song at the end. Don't wait till the offering. Because the Pharisees would sometimes have the wrong idea that, that we do sometimes, that we can compartmentalize. I got my, my walk with God and my walk with my fellow human being. And as long as I'm checking the boxes in my walk with God, this stuff with my fellow human being can wait. God sees it very differently. What does he tell us in 1 John? A man that says he loves God and yet hates his brother is what? A liar. What's that tell us? That our, our relationship with our fellow man, what's going on in here towards our fellow man, is a great litmus test to the depth of our walk with God or the lack thereof. He says, go. Reconcile as much as is possible with you. This has always been a temptation for religious people to try to wash away things with my relationship with people by what I do in the religious world. That's a big part of what happened in the Old Testament, why the prophets kept having to come to the nation of Israel. Because they were checking the religious boxes. But listen, for example, to Amos chapter 8. Verse 3, these are grave words from God. They say, the songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere, silence. You say, why? Why would there be such judgment from God? Verse 4 goes on. He says, hear this, you who trample on the needy. 
and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat? Do you see what they're saying? They're saying, can we just finish with this religious box I'm checking off the Sabbath and the new moon so I can get back to pulling a fast one on the people out there? And God would have none of it. He's telling them the way you deal with those people out there reflects on your relationship with me. You go make that right before you sing that song, before you leave this morning. Romans 12, 18, Paul says this, this way, if possible, so far as it depends on you. Live peaceably with all men. We all know there's people in our lives, no matter what you do, they're not going to respond in kind. But have I done everything that I can to make it right? Verse 25, you, you hear the urgency. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the garden, you be put in prison, just like my buddy in jail the other day. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. It's anger. Now, one of the things I see as we go through these three rubber meets the road parts of our lives is that each negative, I believe, ties back to a positive beatitude. You remember we said the beatitude reflects what the heart of a Christ follower should be? So, so what's the flip side of a, of a heart that's just seething with anger? And that's the kind of anger this is. It's the kind you feed. You feed that bitterness repeatedly, and it just grows and grows and sees. What's the flip side of that? I, I think Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. I think about the gift of peace. If we would say, God, I, I lay down my anger today, my unrighteous anger that I've been holding on to and harboring. I ask you to help me be a peacemaker. That's a gift. It's a gift that will bring glory to God. It's a gift that will bring more joy to your life. And it's a gift that will bring good to your family, your co-workers, your neighbors, and so on. Well, let's go on to the next one. Goes on to talk about lust, verse 27. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. And again, many of the Pharisees and perhaps some of us today read that and say, Check, I've I've not slept with another man's wife next. But Jesus goes on again, verse 28. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The phrase with lustful intent is important. It is not just a notice of beautiful woman that she's beautiful. There's an intent here to, to make her mine in my mind. It's on purpose. It's not a fleeting glance. It's a, it's a gaze with a purpose, whether it's on a screen or in, in person. Now we live in a society that tells us that's no big deal. 
My heart was broken one time as I met with a grown man whose marriage was in shambles because of unfaithfulness. And as we began to, to work through the roots of it, he told me about growing up as a young boy. And his dad would pull him next to him and said, son, let's watch this. And it was flat out pornography on a screen from his father. There's this idea that we sometimes heard said something like this. Maybe, maybe you've heard it before. I'm a red-blooded male. Nothing wrong with looking at the menu so long as I don't order, right? <laughs> what does Jesus say? Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Right eye, right hand, is he speaking literally? Some have taken him that way. Read the history of origin in church history. Most believe he is not, and I, I agree with them. Why? Jesus is dealing with the heart. He talks about the, the right hand and the right eye. What's the trouble if, if you chop that off? Guess what? You, you still have a left hand. You still have a left eye. And even if you chopped all four of them off, guess what? You still got a heart and a mind. Most believe the reason he says right hand, right eye, is those were seen as more valuable. Sorry, sorry South Pauls. <laughs> He's saying, hey, whatever it is, even if it's valuable to you in your life, think about the eye, those things you look at on a regular basis. No matter how valuable it is to you, if it causes you to lust, cut that thing out of your life. Your hand, the things you do, whatever you do, no matter how much it means to you, if that causes you to lust, cut that out of your life. Matthew 18, he talks about feet, where, wherever you go, right? Wherever you go that causes you to lust and feeds that flame in your heart, stop going there. Listen, I believe in a God who is full of grace and mercy. But I also believe in a God who in the Hebrew is esh oklah. You know what that means? Consuming fire. He wants to burn all the sin out of your life and mine. Elkanah, you know what that name of God means? He is a jealous God. He will not have us bowing. To idols in our lives. What do we do? Romans 8.13 If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. It's a cooperative effort. We cannot do it without Him, but He will not do it alone. We have to make the choices to do what I talked about. Stop looking at that. Stop doing that. Stop going there. 
but we need his help. And it's almost as though in addition to those choices we can make, I think in military terms of the guy on the ground that shines the laser on the target that needs blown up. We, we take the laser of faith and shine it on it in our lives and say, God, I need your help to destroy this. Please bring the rain. And he brings all the supernatural power we need to overcome that. But he will not do it until we decide it needs to go. This will cost us in our society. It may cost you being part of a conversation at work because what do we often think? Well, if I don't see this or read this, I'll be, I'll be on the outside. Everybody's watching that episode, and I, I got to stay caught up, or I'm going to be kind of left out. I like what John Stott said. He said, we may have to become culturally maimed in order to preserve our purity of mind. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. If I don't check out all this stuff, I'll be considered an ignoramus. He says, our Lord replies that for the sake of your soul, you'd better be an ignoramus if you know it does harm to know these things. What does the Apostle Paul tell us? We are to be innocent in regard to what is evil. I paraphrase it like this. It's probably not always the best thing for a Christian to be considered a highly cultured individual when we live in such a wicked culture. Remember when we talked about salt? Salt is different from the rotting meat that it is put on. William Hendrickson got right to it. Listen to this. He says, the lesson is this. Sin, being a very destructive force, must not be pampered. It must be put to death. Colossians 3, 5. Temptation should be flung aside immediately and decisively dilly-dallying is deadly halfway measures work havoc the surgery must be radical right at this very moment and without any vacillation the obscene book on my shelf should be burned the scandalous picture destroyed the soul-destroying film condemned the sinister yet very intimate social tie broken and the baneful habit discarded. In the struggle against sin, the believer must fight hard. Shadow boxing will never do. And if the lesson with anger is don't compartmentalize your life, got God here and my relationship with man here, the lesson here is don't dilly-dally with lust in your heart kill it now by the power of the spirit and i think about this area of lust i think about satan i think about sin and temptation in general and what what does he always do he over promises and under delivers this has been shown by study after study in this realm that those who indulge in this on a regular basis, whether on a computer or an iPhone, 
find that it is a fleeting satisfaction with diminishing returns. Study after study about an inability to function healthily in this area after repeated exposure to this. Satan overpromises and under delivers. Now listen, it's just the opposite with God. I believe in an infinite and holy God of purity that offers true satisfaction with increasing returns. Think of the beatitude that's the flip side of this one. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. You want true satisfaction. Stop believing Satan's lie and pursue it in God and his righteousness. You'll be filled and you can keep going back for more because he's infinite in his goodness. What about Matthew 5, 8? Blessed are the pure in heart. For they will see God. If it's been a while since you felt like you had that kind of intimacy in your walk with God, today could be the day you say, I'm turning back. I'm turning from Satan's lies. I'm turning to him. Instead of lust, I want to encourage us as believers to open the gift of purity in our lives. Final one. Divorce. Verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And can I see your Bible for one sec, Lynn? Thank you. But I say to you, verse 32, that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now to understand the heart of the Pharisees on this matter, we have to look elsewhere in Matthew to really get a glimpse deeper into where a lot of them came from. Matthew 19, if you have your Bibles, verse 3 says, the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? For any cause. That's where some of them were in this matter of divorce. Where did the whole idea of divorce in the law come from? Well, you have to go back to Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. As when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce. And we'll read more of that in a little bit. But when it says some indecency, many of the leaders at this time had followed a rabbi who took that to mean almost anything. If she burns my food one too many times. If you find a, a woman you find more attractive, some of them brought that into the mix. That's why they say, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? 
what's going on here? They're like focused on, on the way out. They're focused on the exception, right? That's where they're locked in on. When am I allowed to get out? <clears throat> How did Jesus respond in Matthew 19, verse 4? He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You see, where they're focused on the way out, he goes back to the dream of the creator for what marriage was meant to be. It's almost like they viewed marriage like an escape room. I've never done one. Anybody done an escape room? Like the whole, the first thing you're thinking about from the time you get in is, how do I get out? Right? But listen, Jesus goes right before that to, to the very intention of God. And I think, man, what if we stopped viewing marriage as an escape room and more as a glorious banquet provided by the creator for his creation. Like if we thought about his dream, that it's lifelong faithfulness. We think a lot about the dreams of other people, and sometimes that's good. Like think about someone you love who dies that always wanted to go to Hawaii, but they didn't get to make it. And you love that person, so you say, hey, once we get their ashes, Let's do whatever it takes to fly to Hawaii and we'll scatter them there. Why? Because that was their dream and you love them. Listen, God's not dead, but he has a dream for marriage. And, and when it starts to get tough, what if instead of only thinking about me, 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 what's easy for me? What's his dream? What is his dream? What therefore God has joined together. Let not. Man, separate. Back to Matthew 19, verse 7. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. What's he saying? He's saying it was not a command like Moses was saying, You must divorce your wife. It was a concession in certain situations of indecency because you all have such hard hearts. It was also a means of protection to cause a man to think twice about taking that step. How do I know that? Go back to, to Deuteronomy 24. It says, if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, the, the first one to divorce her, may not take her again to be his wife. What would that do? It, it would say, hey, you better think twice before you divorce her, because if this is just a hasty decision, you're not allowed to bring her back. You better think long and hard. Make sure there's, there's grounds here. Now listen, I think about this. 
And I come at this not only from a heart of God's truth, but a heart of mercy and grace. I am not here to pound anyone for past mistakes in this area of divorce. We all have sin in our past. And God's grace is abundant. What I'm going to share, I'm sharing for our marriages that we're in right now. I'm talking to a church that's called to be salt in this world, called to be different, called to be light, called to be visible in the way we live for Jesus Christ. And I believe that needs to impact our marriages. And I want to share a couple couple ideas here. Listen, divorce is sometimes allowed. In case of physical sexual immorality, that's how I believe when he talks about sexual immorality there, that's defined. Some debate, is it ongoing or is it one time? But physical sexual immorality, it's sometimes allowed in that moment, but never ideal. And even then, it is not commanded, okay? In moments like that, it sometimes becomes a necessary path in a fallen world, but it should never be entered into automatically or lightly. And it happens on occasion, even among God's people. But it should not be commonplace. Listen, what if instead of looking for the way out all the time, we started looking for a way to be all in? As a spouse, God called me to be. What if instead of always thinking about that reason to bail, I I focused on the reasons to stay? God's intent is faithfulness. Lifelong. Listen, I think about this, and sometimes people bring up compatibility as a, a reason for divorce. And I'm not against compatibility tests, especially beforehand. You're trying to learn about somebody, not saying they're not useful. I'm saying those tests are never grounds for, for a divorce. You think about the ultimate case of incompatibility. One author pointed out, think about 1 Corinthians 7. What does Paul tell, tell the couple there? Hey, Christian, if, if you, you, you're married and you're both non-Christians, but you get saved and your spouse is not a Christian, what does it say? As long as they'll live with you, you stay with them. Can you think of a greater incompatibility than that? He says, you stay there. You be faithful to your vow. I think about compatibility in in relation to marriage, and I think about how Ephesians 5 tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And I think, God forbid, what if Jesus had taken a compatibility test with you and I to decide whether he was going to come down here or not? I live in heaven where everything's perfect. They live on a messed up, fallen earth. He's saying, I'm perfectly righteous. They're depraved sinners from the heart on out. He might say, I have loved them with an everlasting love, but they turn their back on me at the slightest whim. I'm not compatible. I ain't going down there. I don't know. He loved us. With agape love. He says, husbands, love your wives that way. 
not what's the, the minimum requirement, but what's the most I can do in God's strength in my marriage? See, I look at a world where there's a lot of bouncing. It's, it's, it's epidemic in every area of life, jobs. People bouncing all the time. Not that God never moves people. Churches, bounce. But I'm telling you, you say, why do people bounce so much at jobs and churches? It's because they bounce on the most fundamental unit of society that God has established, marriage. If people bounce there, of course they're going to bounce everywhere else. I want to look at the church of Jesus Christ called to be salt and light and challenge us not to settle for the bare minimum in our commitments. I think what happens sometimes when it comes to real satisfaction, like God is not trying to hold us back. He, he's trying to tell us we are not digging deep enough. We sometimes buy the lie that we're miserable because we've surrendered too much to God. <laughs> but really, the reality is often just the opposite. We're miserable because we're holding back from surrendering all. Whether it's in our marriage or any other area God has called us to. Though surrendering all will cost you, it will also bring great joy. And I think of three realms of how we approach our walk with God. Based on Revelation 3.16 where, where John talks about hot and cold and lukewarm. I think about sweet surrender. That, that's the hot follower. That's the follower that's all in. Okay? I think about the cold. That's the downright defiant. No. <laughs> I won't believe and I won't obey you, God. What about the lukewarm? I call that the miserable middle ground. And I think that's where we can sometimes find ourselves. If we're believers, but we're, we're holding back. I want to encourage us to move to that sweet surrender, whether it's in our marriage or any other part of our walk with God. Come back to God's dream. What is his intention? Whatever area it is, I like what Michael Green said. Members of the kingdom aim to respond in wholehearted gratitude to the love of God. And that attitude knows no limits. It never cries enough. Is that how we're approaching our marriages? Is that how we're approaching our walk with God? You say, what beatitudes tie in with marriage? Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Who are the poor in spirit and those who mourn? It's those who know they don't have it all together themselves, right? I'm telling you, if you're married, you need to know that. Sometimes it's hard to see in our pride, but we need to know we don't have it all together in ourselves. And you know what that leads us to be able to do from a genuine and broken heart to say, I'm sorry? We need to be able to say, I'm sorry in our marriages and ask God for help to turn around where we've been dropping the ball. What about Matthew 5, 7? Blessed are the merciful, 
for they will be shown mercy. The merciful person is able to say something else in their marriage. You know what it is? I forgive you. I forgive you. I believe in a marriage where a couple can genuinely say, I'm sorry and I forgive you, you can work through anything. But if you can't say one or both of those, you're headed for trouble. As we close, it's the time of year we think about gifts. Think about the ultimate gift, the Son of God. Think about some of those precious verses we hang on to this time of year. Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah 9, 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. But in light of our message today from His own words, I want to tell us that the gift of the Son was not only to get us to heaven someday. As you look at His Sermon on the Mount, it's as we come to faith in Him, you look at the Beatitudes, it's that His heart might beat inside of us. It's that gift of purpose today that we might be salt and light, different and visible and present in a world that needs to see Him. It's the gift of His power because he's the only one who could and did fulfill the perfect law. And it's the gift of this deep, penetrating righteousness in the way we live that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. So, so as we go out today, I want to encourage you. If you've got anger brewing inside, lay it down, confess it, and pick up the gift of peace. The gift of being a peacemaker. Who do you need to talk to? Who do you need to pursue reconciliation with? If it's lust that he's touching on today, lay it down, confess it. And say, Lord, help me walk in the gift of purity. Help me to hunger and thirst for your righteousness. And you, please satisfy me. And finally, if you're looking at your life and you say, man, I'm being unfaithful in my marriage or any other relationship or commitment, lay that down and say, Lord, please help me to be faithful where you've called me, to be all in. Help me have that, that heart that's poor in spirit that's able to say I'm sorry when I need to. That merciful heart that's able to say, I forgive you and remain faithful. Thank you for your faithfulness to us, Father. Surely undeserved that you sent your son. Well, we celebrate this time of year. Lord, I pray that as we walk out of here, we would know full well that it's not our own righteousness. That's going to make us right before you. It's not our own righteousness that, that's going to help us live the way you want us to. It's, it's filthy rags. It's the righteousness of Christ. <clears throat> it is in him all of your promises are yes. The baby in the manger became the Lamb of God on a cross and the victorious risen Savior 
outside of an empty tomb, now ascended to heaven where he sends his Holy Spirit to help us put to death the anger, the lust, and the unfaithfulness in our lives and to help us live for you. I pray as we take our offering today that it would come from hearts that are just blown away with gratitude for the gift of your son and all the gifts that he unpacks in our lives as we walk with him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.